Uh, you know, um, there's two things we need to do before we do um, deliverance. One is to go back to last week really quickly. Stephen Alexander reminded me of something I think that's kind of neat that I kind of glossed over last week, which is that, uh, well, there's sort of two ways to do it. One is um, the rabbis sort of upbraid Abraham because, after all, he argued with God about Sodom and Gomorrah, a group of people he'd never met, but didn't argue about Isaac at all. And the rabbis sort of say, really bad form. And um, what Stephen said is interesting is throughout Genesis, uh, Stephen reminded me, um, Abraham and God have conversations, and it's almost like God is trying to converse with Abraham, but Abraham gets this idea about Isaac and doesn't talk back, and what do you know? No more conversations with God. It's an interesting, interesting thing to read chronologically. When Abraham doesn't say no or I don't think so, no more communication with God between, with Abraham in the book of Genesis. Interesting. I, I think we did not make it to Joseph. Is that right? So just to step back to Joseph last week. Um, Really questionable to know who Jacob's favorite son is. In general, we assume it would be Joseph. The story seems to act that way. But Joseph has a brother named Benjamin, and that means son of my right hand. That is the person who sits immediately to your right. So really not sure if Benjamin's the favored son instead of Joseph. Obviously, these two kids are favored by Jacob, and this is parenting 101. You tell your kids you love them the same, <laughs> Even if it's different, dad does not do this. He's really a bad parent. I just want you to know uh, another one of those bad parents. And sure enough, um, Joseph is kind of a brat. Just quite honestly, he's kind of spoiled. And consider he has these dreams and he makes these pronouncements that are sort of shocking to his brothers. Now, we don't know how old he is. Um, he, he could be eight. He could be 14. He could be 20. But in general, um, if your younger sibling said you were going to bow down to them one day, you'd probably be agitated too. Um, I don't really know why it is. I don't think that it's just that he's, he's sort of bragged to them and that's why they're mad enough to, to talk about killing him. You know, Dad obviously sends him to spy on them, which is another one of those events where, look, Dad's favoring him over us, right? Maybe, and I tell this to the kids when we tell the story in chapel, maybe they figured that if Joseph weren't there, then dad would love them more. Of course, that's not how relationships work. But just thinking through, right? Sometimes we think there's a limit to things. Like I only have so much energy and time in the day. I only have so much love to give. So if dad weren't doing that with Joseph, he'd love us more. Of course, we know love is one of those things that the more you love, the more love you have to give. I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't follow most other things, right? Where we have limited quantities. But, but it's interesting that the story sort of functions that way. Um, Reuben is the oldest, right? And Reuben's compromised himself because he sleeps with his father's concubine. We didn't, we didn't read that, but that's how he disqualifies himself from being uh, the, favored, the favored child. Reuben's the one who saved Joseph's life. 
And they decide they're going to kill him, and Reuben says, no, let's just throw him in a pit <laughs> with the idea he'll free him later. And then they get this great idea, don't they? Hey, if he's dead, we don't get anything. But if we sold him into slavery, maybe we'd get coats too. Um, very utilitarian idea, right? So they sell Joseph, and that's how he ends up in Egypt. He ends up a slave uh, for a man named Potiphar. We think Potiphar is a eunuch. Um, this is an old, old practice. Um, there's this idea that if you don't have children and you can't, then your loyalty, instead of being to your family, will be to the king or the pharaoh. So eunuchs were high-ranking officials, and because they had no family or future, you would think that if somebody castrated you, you'd want to get revenge. In, 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 the, in the ancient world, they didn't think that way. They thought there'll be no future, so they'll be the loyalist of servants. So there's lots of eunuchs in high-profile positions. They don't end up guarding harems until the Muslims, who had never heard of eunuchs, invade Constantinople in the late Six, uh, well, they don't really get Constantinople until the 700s, but they, they do the Islamic conquest. They find eunuchs and they say, what do we do with these people? They'd been around for 2,500 years. Again, it's an assurance of loyalty. Potiphar apparently is a good enough eunuch. He gets a wife. This is what we think. The wife is not a good lady. <laughs> um, and, and it's likely that Potiphar knows this because um, Joseph rises to the ranks, becomes the steward of everything in the house. You think about this seriously. What's in the house? The wife is a piece of property. Joseph is the steward of Potiphar's property. And the property says, lie with me. And Joseph says, I can't abuse my master's stuff, including you. Um, she comes up with this plan to frame him. Very unlikely Potiphar believes her because the penalty for adultery would be death. <laughs> Potiphar has now lost his best servant. Perhaps this has happened with her before. We, 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 we don't know. But he should have died. If Potiphar really believed Joseph were guilty, he would have died. Down he goes, interprets dreams, right? Dreams that, honestly, I could interpret. <laughs> Pharaoh has a dream no one could interpret. You could inter My daughter could interpret that dream. <laughs> Nobody knows what that means. Notice that Joseph puts himself into this really interesting position where he says, well, if you had a wise person, this is what a wise person would do. And, and of course, he has just put him, his name in the hat, right? And, and Pharaoh does this interesting bit. He gives Joseph his signature card, right? In the ancient world, you don't sign your name. You have a ring, and you stamp that into hot wax or clay, and that's your signature. And when you have the ring of the Pharaoh, only one of those can be cast. You sign Pharaoh's name to documents, right? Interestingly enough, bishops still have this. So if you ever see an ordination certificate, that's stamped with the diocesan ring to this day. Uh, and Andy Doyle wears that one. You have to be Bishop Diocesan. The suffragans don't get that, right? Because the bishop is the diocese and the ring represents diocesan authority. It's all old stuff. Um, Joseph ends up doing something really interesting um, when we track through him, going a little out of sequence. But Joseph hoards the food on behalf of Pharaoh. Seven great years, everybody's fine. And then notice the first year of famine, People don't have any food, so Joseph says, give me your money. The story is telling you how Pharaoh became so rich. 
Before this, the pharaoh, apparently not as, as quite the centralized autocrat. At the end of this, pharaoh now has all the money. <laughs> so the pharaoh owns the bank. Then the people come back year two, and they don't have any money. And Joseph says, well, sell me your animals. So this tells you how Pharaoh owned all the animals. Then they sell their land. And there's evidence that Pharaoh did not used to own all the land in Egypt. Now he does. And then Joseph says, sell yourselves. You will be Pharaoh's slaves. And the people say, we'd rather be slaves and eat than die free people. And the story in some ways is telling you who created slavery in Egypt. It was Joseph. So unlike what our presenter said tonight, the Pharaoh's forgotten, I would suggest to you the new Pharaoh knows all too well how this worked out. The new Pharaoh sees that the Hebrew people are free and that his own people, the Egyptians, are enslaved. And the new Pharaoh says, I don't think this is right. Let's turn the tables. You made slaves of us, we'll make slaves of you. The story is clear though, Joseph does it. Okay, then what else happens? Joseph shaves his face. This is important because Hebrews don't. Explains why his brothers don't recognize him. They've never seen his unshaven adult face before. The interesting thing in the Hebrew Bible is it starts to use Egyptian words, so non-native words, as we get down into Egypt, almost setting the literary context. It's kind of a cool thing, biblically, right? Joseph marries uh, a, 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 a Egyptian lady, and then, of course, we get the brothers, and they come, and the brothers need to buy food. They convince their dad to let him leave. Dad's like, not taking Benjamin, right? I don't trust you, you worthless boys. Uh, you got rid of my other favorite son, can't let you have this one too. Dad says, I'd go down to Sheol. Uh, important to know now what Sheol is, it's the place dead people go. Um, which ones? All of them. So this is sort of like Tartarus or Hades in Greek mythology. This predates the notion of eternal heaven and hell. This is the idea that everyone goes to the place of the dead, and it's just dark down there. And if you're rich or you're poor or you're young and you're old and you die, that's just where you go. It's the grave. And Dad says, you'll pull me down to the grave while I'm still alive. That's before my time. The boys come. Joseph treats them terribly, <laughs> right? Uh, he roughs them up, accuses them of spying, puts their money in their bags to make them terrified, and notice, takes one of his brothers and throws him in the dungeon. Now, dungeons are not nice places, right? They're not like county jails where you can take elective or, 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 or white-collar crime penitentiaries where you can learn pottery and you can go rowboating, you know, and, and, and you, can make, you can grow your own cilantro to go in your fancy meal, right? <laughs> dungeons are dismal, dark, terrible places. And Joseph's just going to leave Shimon in there. Simeon in Hebrew is called Shimon. He's going to leave Shimon in there. And you know, the brothers are like, whew, glad it was Shimon, not us. Right? I mean, notice that they just, uh, the, um, blood is much thinner than water in the story. They, they, they go on back. They're starving. They've got to extort dad to send Benjamin, the son of his right hand. So, so now they go. Um, <clears throat> I want to suggest to you that the traditional interpretation is that Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they've changed. 
I disagree with this interpretation strongly. I think Joseph is calculating a nasty revenge. <laughs> Please notice that all of his actions are intended to frame and create duress and trauma with his family. He plants the money again in Benjamin. He plants his diviner's cup. Did you know Joseph read tea leaves? The Bible's very comfortable with God's sort of chosen agent practicing sorcery. Doesn't say reading tea leaves is silly. Joseph says, that's how I predict the future. Hope that strikes you as odd. <laughs> Not odd to the Bible. The Bible's totally fine that people can read tea leaves and predict the future. Um, Joseph has him right where he wants them. He's ready to execute Benjamin. He's ready to basically kill all of his brothers as spies. And I want to suggest to you that, again, maybe he's testing their faith, but another way to read it is, in the moment where he's ready to exact revenge, something breaks in him, and instead, he enacts compassion. And that's a pretty cool story, right? Um, pretty cool story that we have that possibility as well in the middle of our calculations to make a turn. That's the biblical word, repent. And, and change from vengeance to compassion. I don't know if that's real neat, but that's sort of what happens um, in, in the story. The brothers don't trust him, you notice. They're afraid he still wants to get him even after dad dies. Dad, being a real sweet guy, you know, um, his kids have done stuff over the years. He's never said anything. He curses his kids on his deathbed. That way uh, it can never be changed. Right? So Shimon and Levi, he says, you don't get any land. Uh, Reuben, you're sort of a wild donkey of a man, and that's how it's going to be for you. you know, <laughs> this is real good parenting. Uh, Joseph's kids come in, and Dad does the switch. Notice he crosses his arms so that the younger son gets the good blessing and the older son gets the inferior one. It's definitely inferior because it's his left hand. Left hand is used for one thing in two-thirds of the world to this date. Same in the Bible. So oldest son gets the poo-poo hand. And, uh, and, and this is the story of Genesis. The younger one prevails over the older, over and over and over and over again. Um, two weird other, well, one other weird thing. Um, I told you about the ages of the patriarchs. They're all strange. Um, really, I'm not sure we know why it is this way, but Abraham's age is... 7 times 5 squared, and Isaac's is 5 times 6 squared, and Jacob's is 3 times 7 squared. Um, <clears throat> some of that numerological significance has been lost to us, but there are numbers that show up in the Bible that are weird. <clears throat> when Abraham goes to rescue his, son, uh, his nephew Lot, who's been taken captive, he rescues him with the number of primes between <laughs> something like 2 and 31, the sum of the primes between those. And, and that number shows up in Egyptian magical manuscripts. So it's some kind of magic number. Weird. Just, just letting you know. But these number of things are there. <clears throat> the other thing that's interesting is the brothers say, uh, Joseph, aren't you so mad? And Joseph says something like, what you intended evil, God intended for good. And, and I just want to offer you, even in Genesis, first book of the Bible, we have, we have sort of a couple options on that. We could say everything happens for a reason, and it's preordained, pulled by God, so puppet strings, right? And if you're wondering why suffering happens in the world, it's because God's got a plan for it. I don't like that interpretation, because it sort of says that the means justify the ends. There's another way to hear it, though. 
um, <clears throat> which is that no matter what happens and how awful and abysmal it seems, that God is able to work redemptively. Uh, that, I think, is much more in line with the rabbinic view that God is always creating order out of chaos, right? And, and that actually is more in line with my own experience, that even when bad things happen, oddly enough, later, <laughs> there were lessons or empathy or compassion or insight that I could have learned from that if I was willing to. Didn't have to, but could. So, so maybe you know this from Romans 8:28. in all things God is capable of working for the good of those who love God. Doesn't mean it will happen, that's contingent on us. But God is capable of working things to our good. That's a good, bold statement. Did I miss anything in Genesis for you? <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting thing because Jesus does that too, right? He says the first will be last and the last will be first. And, you know, that's very, that's very Genesis, right? That's exactly what happens over and over and over again here. Um, and I wonder if it's, if, I don't know, I think in some ways there's, uh, there's always options. But one way to hear it is there's this status quo that the firstborn gets everything and only the firstborn matters. And one way to read it is, God is perpetually upsetting the status quo in favor of, I don't know if it's equality, right? Because sometimes when the younger one triumphs over the older one, that's not really, doesn't seem like equality. That just seems like the underdog winning. But over this, it's not like that always happens, but, but I think maybe it's corrective. So I don't know the answer. But I do know that would be very, very countercultural for that to happen. It's the firstborn gets everything. I, I certainly think it would be life-giving for us to think that God is interested in evening out our biases. The one way to hear the Isaiah text that every mountain, every, every valley will be exalted and all the hills laid low so that the way of the Lord can become level. You think about that with humans and, and the way that we that, that our systems are biased, if we could level our bias. I mean, you know, I, there's one way to hear it. Anybody else? Thoughts on Genesis? I'm probably going to really agitate you tonight with Exodus. I just want to point out that there's a lot of weird things. So, so if you know that that's what I want to do... Um, don't be too disappointed, okay? Remember, at any point, you can say, stop talking about that. I want to know about blah, and would be happy to do it. Please. I didn't understand, really, why there was no memory. Because they're storytellers. Yeah. And it passes down from generation to generation to generation. So why was there no so Susan's saying, you know, as the video insinuated, there's no memory. I'm just going to tell you, you're always welcome to disagree with the resources. And you're welcome to disagree with the book. And you're welcome to disagree with me. You are. I think, I think there's, 
it, to be nice, to be fair, we usually think like, oh, I don't remember, meaning I forgot something, I'll just think about it. But, but this memory in this story is functioning a little bit more in the old sense, like something's been dismembered and now it's going to be remembered. So these are a covenanted people who have been dismembered from the promise of the land. And, and now the story begins where God's going to remember as if an arm was cut off and now to be reattached. You know, it sure would be, it's really difficult to think like, oh, God just forgot they were in slavery for 200 years, but now God remembered. <laughs> you could read it literally that way. That's a troubling reading. Another way to hear it is now God is going to take action for whatever reason, God has delayed, but God is now going to take action and actively remember these people to the promise. But they didn't remember about Joseph. The Pharaoh. Yeah. Well, maybe what they didn't remember is that Joseph did it on behalf of the Pharaoh. Again, there's memories and then there's fake memories. It's one of those interesting things, right, just to, just to mention, because my mother-in-law introduced this to me as an educator. We have childhood memories, and in general, they're very vivid, and in general, they're wrong. <laughs> In general, they're factually errant, but very strong emotionally. And, and, and again, the Pharaoh might very well remember the fact pattern. Joseph made us slaves. And this is a very possible interpretation, but, but on behalf of Egypt, you know. Um, so out of that memory, the Pharaoh comes up with a plan, right? Let's make them slaves. Uh, that seems okay, but people don't like being made slaves of, and at a certain point you worry about revolution. <laughs> so the way you do it is you try to sandbag your odds by getting rid of the warriors, killing the boys. <clears throat> and Pharaoh commands two midwives. Now, now you just got to think through this. There's like 100,000 people, and there's two midwives? Come on now, right? This Pharaoh really doesn't understand how birthing works. Let's <laughs> be honest. <laughs> They have names. Interesting enough, these women are named. And, and he, he orders them to do this thing, and they tell him the most ridiculous lie. I mean, only a man who's never been near a birth could possibly believe that. And, and maybe that's true. Maybe the Pharaoh never has seen a birth. Oh, they're just so vigorous. They give birth before we get there. You know, these are those women who give birth to babies while they're picking cotton in the field and never stop. Crazy story, right? Um, of course, that'd probably even make Pharaoh even more afraid if they're that vigorous, right, of these, these super-athlete women. Well, notice that what they do is what we call civil disobedience. <laughs> and it's interesting that in the second book of the Bible, civil disobedience is practiced against unjust laws, and God takes care of the people who do it. It happens again. Because Pharaoh gives another really awful edict, doesn't he? That his soldiers are now to throw the boys into the Nile. Please notice that Pharaoh's own sister breaks Pharaoh's rule. She practices what we call civil disobedience <laughs> by adopting this Hebrew child, who, by the way, would look nothing like an ethnic Egyptian. It would be extremely clear that she has adopted a non-Egyptian child. What does the Pharaoh say? Nothing. Interesting, isn't it? 
This is the kind of thing, just in case you're wondering, that inspired people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. to practice civil disobedience, defiance of unjust laws. Um, this story about Moses, and by the way, if you're Hebrew, you call him Moshe, just in case you see it. Um, turns out there's a much older story about a guy named Sargon of Akkad, who ends up being Sargon the Great. It's a thousand years before Moses, or at least 500 years before Moses. And there was some oppression in the land, and Sargon's mother wanted to save him and floated him down the river Tigris in a basket lined with bitumen and pitch. Helpful to know that this is a Mesopotamian story redo. Not saying it didn't happen, saying that this story is older than the Bible and it happens with Sargon the Great. Um, of course, we have to think there's lots of mothers in Egypt. None of them will willingly give their child to the Pharaoh's soldiers. Oh, you want to throw my boy in the Nile? Here, have him. Right? Just, we, how many other babies were floated down the Nile or they did something else with? We, 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 we don't know. Um, Pharaoh's sister names him Moshe. That's actually an Egyptian word. It's, it sounds like a Hebrew word, Moshe, which is to draw out. And your name in Hebrew is who you are. Moshe is drawn out of the water. He will draw the people out of Egypt. Um, contrary to Hollywood, we're not sure that he grows up a prince of Egypt. We just know that Pharaoh's sister ultimately secures him an upbringing, right? So, so we don't know, like in the Ten Commandments, that Seti was going to make him the prince. That's all fanciful. We don't really know the relationship. The Bible were interested, it sure would tell us. What we know is that at some point as an adult, Moshe sees a slave master beating a slave, and he physically intervenes. Right? Um, he decides to fight injustice with his fists. The next day, he sees that slave debating another slave. He says, stop, and they say, what are you going to do, kill me? That's when Moshe knows he'd better get out of town <laughs> because he would get the death sentence. Right? Interesting to think, one way to read the story is, Moshe has tried to deliver the people by himself, and he failed. Uh, he runs, and of course, the next place he ends up is at a well, which means there'll be a marriage. And notice that Moshe is a good suitor. Uh, he defends Zipporah and her sisters against some nasty sheep people that are trying to take the water first. The reason the first rights to the water matter is there might not be enough. Also, it gets hot in the day, so you, you want to water the sheep while it's not so hot. So Moshe secures that. Moshe gets a really cool father-in-law who has three names. He's either Jethro, or later he's Ruel, or, or he could be called Hobab. And uh, what are the reasons for the names? Um, different sources in the Bible. That's what we think. One day, Moshe is watching the sheep. Now, he's been trained to be a shepherd because Egyptians are agriculturalists. They, they live and die by the Nile, not by uh, the nomadic following the herds. If you're interested in Genesis, that's why the Egyptians won't eat with the Hebrew people. They just think they're gross. People who live with sheep in fields are nasty people. The civilized people grow crops. Um, Moshe has to be taught how to be a shepherd because he, he grew up in Egypt. He's an agriculturalist. So he learned to do this, and sure enough, one day he looks and sees this bush, right, that is on fire and not burned up. The rabbis wonder how many bushes God had burned before somebody came over and investigated. 
how many bushes did God burn before Moshe comes? We, we don't know. We get this interesting ambiguity that the bush is on fire, but maybe it's an angel, one of the B'nai Elohim, like one of the sons of God. That's a polytheistic word. Or maybe it's just God, right? I mean, Moses looks at the bush and he looks away because Moses is afraid to look at God. That's how the scripture reads. And the first thing the bush is interested in, notice, is that Moshe is wearing shoes. How bizarre. I've talked about this in church before. I've done I've really tried to figure out why, and there's no definitive answer on this. Most of us know in parts of the world, I mean, particularly in Alaska, you know, you just, it gets muddy and icy, you leave your shoes at the door, so you don't track dirt in the house, right? Well, that's fine, except the floor was made of dirt. <laughs> so don't track dirt in on my dirt floor is a funny bit. Uh, I did have somebody tell me, and it's maybe, maybe logical, that the dirt of the field, like following sheep, is different from the dirt in your tent, like if you step in poo-poo, so that you wouldn't want to bring that in. Um, but, but, but this isn't a house, and there's not a tent. So I want to suggest to you that perhaps this is God saying, this ground is set apart, you're experiencing my present, and you won't need to put any barrier between you and myself. That uh, is, now's the time to go ahead and be vulnerable and not have to be wearing your defenses. But I don't know that because the answer is nobody knows definitively why that's so important. This will happen again in the book of Joshua. Joshua will see, well, God, and God will say, take your shoes off. <laughs> so it happens at least twice. Um, then God gives a really disappointing thing to Moses, doesn't, doesn't God? God says, you're going to go and get the people out of Egypt because I've, I've heard their cries and I've remembered them. <laughs> Again, why did it take you so long? You're wondering, but think about remembering is now I'm ready to act on their behalf, right? Um, and um, God says, you're going to do this and here's the sign it's going to work. When you do it, you'll come back here. <laughs> Moshe is really disappointed in this sign. I would also be disappointed, right? If you're ever doubting if I'm going to be with you, here's how you'll know. When it's done, you'll come back here. Would that work for any of you? <laughs> Just think through that, right? So Moshe says, well, that's fine and all, but, but Pharaoh and the people are going to ask who you are because they know lots of other gods, they know Seth, and they know Osiris, and Ra, and Horus, and Bes, and Anubis. They've heard of Molech, and Chemosh, and Milcom. But who are you? And this is, as I told you, I spent a long time on this three weeks ago. This is really an important bit, because in all of the other indigenous Canaanite Middle Eastern religions, if you know the name of a deity, you have power over them. And in all those other religions, Humans only get the name of the deities by tricking them. Remember, in those religions, human beings are made to serve the gods, to feed them, to dress them in the temple, to change their clothes. We're slaves to the gods. So those gods would not want you to have any power over them by knowing their name. This is much different, though. Uh, Moshe says, what's your name? There's no trick here. God says, here it is. <laughs> and and unlike a lot of interpretations, I'm not convinced this is evasive. I'm not convinced God is saying, I am whoever I am, so what's it to you? Remember, in Hebrew, this is the word 
was, will be, am, existence in every facet or permutation. This is like what we say, Holy Spirit in whom we live and move and have our being. It's a nice, nice thing. The Y word is not translated as I am, though. The Y word means he is. What God says to Moshe is not, does not start with ya, that's third person. What God says to Moshe starts with eh, first person. God says to Moshe, how interesting that Moses changes God's name from I am to he is. I suppose we could argue that discipleship is where we take the faith of other people, which is a third person faith, and convert it to a first person faith based on our experience. Right? I mean, the truth is, all of us were brought into faith, or at least faith language, by somebody else giving us the language. Third, third person faith. Um, Moshe gets the, the name, that's great. And then God says, and it's really important, I think, just to do a careful reading here. God says, you're going to go to Pharaoh, and, and Moshe says, Pharaoh's not going to care. And God says, I'm going to tell you three things you can do with Pharaoh, right? The first is you can throw your stick down and it'll turn into a snake. And Moshe does that, and he runs away from it. <laughs> Did you notice? He's terrified by, by, by this happening. This is neat, isn't it? What's good about Moshe, though, is he eventually comes back. One wonders how many times God gave other people this ability and they ran away and did not come back. Interesting way to read the story, isn't it? That what makes Moshe special is he's scared, but eventually he comes back. The other bit is that he can turn water into blood, right? Which means he can take something really useful in the desert and make it useless. So that's a great sign. And the third is he can stick his hand in his shirt or his tunic and pull it out and he'll have a skin disease. Now leprosy in the Bible doesn't mean Hansen's disease. It could mean anything. Mostly it could be categorically going to kill you like flesh-eating bacteria or Hansen's disease. But it could mean chicken pots or shingles. Um, it could also mean uh, allergic reaction like big hives. Right? When you see big hives, you think you're dying. Uh, Moshe looks at his hand and he runs away <laughs> because he's terrified. Isn't this good? It's good who God works with in the Bible. Regular old people. Now, God gives Moshe those three signs, and I want to ask you at this point how many of those does Moshe do? Just one. Just the snake. So you got to wonder, what if Moshe had actually followed instructions? Would the Pharaoh have let the people go then? I'll tell you why about that in a second. Um, God says there's these great signs. Moshe says, I'm not a good speaker. <laughs> God starts to get incredibly frustrated. Did you notice? I'm the one who gave you the mouth, and, I, and I'll give you the words to speak. Yeah, but I'm not a good speaker. Fine, your brother Aaron's coming. <laughs> this is my favorite part. Just send somebody else. 
Anytime, by the way, any discernment program where you're thinking about priestly or di diaconal orders or God's call and your vocation, they always like to think about Moshe's resistance to God here. Um, it's curious that he resists over and over and over and over again. <laughs> um, finally, he agrees, and then comes the weirdest episode in the whole Bible. They've just put this to bed. Moshe's going fine, and then God shows up in the middle of the night to kill him. Anybody else find that strange? And the one who saves Moshe's life, of course, is his wife, Zipporah, not a Hebrew person, right? Didn't know anything about the covenant. Apparently, um, Moshe's had these two kids and has not cut them into the covenant. So Zipporah does that. She circumcises the boys herself and lays their foreskins on Moses' feet. Definitely a euphemism for genitals. Somehow that appeases angry desert cyclone god. Bizarre story. Uh, some people asked in the morning session, was Moses himself circumcised? And the answer is at least a little bit. Because I think I told you this last week, the Egyptians circumcised their people as well. Um, what we think um, is that there were degrees of circumcision and what a lot of cultural anthropologists will tell you that circumcision itself is called sympathetic magic. What that means is when you prune a tree, when you prune a tree back, new bushes grow out, increases the tree's produce yield and fertility, and, and that was the idea of circumcision in the ancient Near East. Prune a little bit back makes you more fertile. Uh, I've read some articles by people who say that the Hebrew people cut more skin off than other people, that the Egyptian or that the Mesopotamian folks did, did like a 180 degree cut instead of a 360, or cut back less. So likely Moshe was somewhat circumcised in his Egyptian home, likely, but we don't know that he had the Hebrew deal. Does that, does, does that make sense? But I want to tell you, I don't care who you read, no one knows what that story means. Because it's just bizarre. Um, scholarly article that probably carries the day is that um, this is initially an encounter between like a genie. Because uh, people believed in spirits of places like genies. Um, a lot of people say that when Jacob wrestles the thing at the Jabbok, that that's like the river spirit that Jacob has to beat to cross it. Same thing here. Spirit of the desert comes to kill him, and we don't believe in spirits anymore, so we'll just make that story God. And that's an old story. This is one of the oldest stories in the Bible, and you know it because it's crazy. <laughs> right? It's a good way to know. In case you're wondering, one of the ways that scholars... When they have different texts, one of the ways they decide which one's more authentic, they pick the crazier read every time. Because they say over years, people would like to smooth that out. So when you get something crazy, oh, that's old. <laughs> I don't know if you've got any other thoughts on the bridegroom of blood, but I just, that's just nuts. Yes, because it's that's right. Or it's one of these stories, as bizarre as it is, that so many people had been telling that you couldn't leave it out. You know, this still happens today. You read a new translation of the Bible, the 
first thing people do is they turn to John 3.16 to see if the translation's right. Because if it doesn't say, for God so loved the world, it's not a good translation. <laughs> right? Now the rest of it could be different, but you better get that one right. And it better be called the valley of the shadow of death. Because if Psalm 23 says anything but that, it's a bad translation. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, um, then Moses comes to Pharaoh finally, right? And, and remember that your heart is not your center of your emotions, it's the center of your will. So Pharaoh, interestingly enough, the first several times, Pharaoh will harden his own will. But next six times, God hardens Pharaoh's will. And the text says, so that God can gain glory over the Egyptians. I hope that's troubling for you. Yes. For lots of reasons. Like Pharaoh got set up. <laughs> well, I do think it's helpful to at least say that Pharaoh begins by hardening his own will. But I'm uncomfortable with God hardening the will of a despot to completely destroy not the despot himself, because the video is wrong. Pharaoh does not drown in the sea. That's all the army people who had to do what they were told for their livelihood, <laughs> right? Now, we know at a certain point, you can't say, I was just following orders and gassed six million Jewish people. However, in general, we follow our orders. Um, and what about those people who were following their orders? Essentially, they're innocent people. And I think this is important to remember when we read the story, right? That a lot of innocent Egyptians get hurt and killed by the actions of their autocrat. Always important when we read the Bible to ask ourselves, is the Bible prescribing that's how it should work, or is the Bible describing that's how it does work? I sure think a lot of Russian people got killed by Joseph Stalin, who in general were innocent. That's what happens when you have despots who don't care about human life. I think a lot of people got killed by, well, Idi Amin. In some ways, the Bible's pretty accurate about what happens with despots who don't value life, right? That's what happens. We have not escaped that story. Anyway, uh, hardening is hard. I want to point out hardening your heart is actually a pretty good thing to do sometimes because if you didn't do it, you'd never exercise for more than 30 seconds, right? <laughs> you get on the treadmill. If you don't harden your heart, you're getting right off. <laughs> Yeah. That's right. But then what you're saying is in the first part, the Pharaoh hardens his own. Yes, and the critical, and there's a critical part where that happens. And the critical part, and there's a couple things that, 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 that go on in the first bit where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. First, Moses says, hey, this God says that my people go. And Pharaoh says, I've never heard of that God. Listen, we've got lots of gods in Egypt. I don't know that one. It's not unreasonable, because remember, in the ancient world, particularly in polytheism, there's a belief that certain geographies have certain gods. You'll see that come later in the Bible, too, right? So you're saying that the god of Canaan has jurisdiction in Egypt? That's not how it works, Moshe. Uh, Egyptians' gods have jurisdiction in Egypt. Canaan god has jurisdiction in Canaan. That's common belief, that gods don't transcend boundaries. Okay? Uh, the other thing that happens that I'm real uncomfortable with is Moshe says, 
God says, let the people go so they can have a festival for three days in the wilderness and worship. And if they don't, God will send a pestilence on them. So won't you let the people have a religious observance? Moshe sticks to that story the whole time. But does he really just want to have a three-day festival or does he intend to leave for good? Well, I think he might intend to leave for good and the Pharaoh thinks that too. The Pharaoh says, you're lying. (laughs) You want to leave. I'm not letting you leave. And he does. He lies. You notice Moses lies the whole time. He lies. And Moshe says, well, look, God says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, I'll deliver my people. So you've got to be afraid of that. And let me show you one of the things God will do. Uh, Moshe tells Aaron to throw down the stick. The stick turns into a snake. And here's this critical point that often gets unrecognized. The Pharaoh has sorcerers, magicians. They do it too. Please notice, they're not doing a trick. The Bible believes they can do it. Bible believes uh, people in the world can turn sticks into snakes. Now, sure, Aaron's snake eats the other snakes. Sign of supremacy. Please notice again, it's a sign of polytheism. The other powers are real, they're just inferior. We impose monotheism on the text that is not monotheistic. Notice that Pharaoh asked the magicians, is this real? And the magicians essentially say, he doesn't have power we don't have. I want to suggest to you, Pharaoh trusts the magicians. Trust the magicians. And that's why he hardens his heart. And this is why this is so important. The magicians can also turn water to blood. They can do that. But they can't do that one. So it makes you wonder, if Moshe had done the three things up front, would he have trusted his magicians or not? The other thing that the Bible does that's really interesting, jumping ahead to the plagues, is that, notice, Moshe turns all the water in the Nile into blood. That's a lot of water that's bad. The magicians can't turn it back into water, but they can take some of the existing water, some of the very little left, and turn that into blood also. Right? The Egyptians can make more frogs come out of the Nile, but they can't make any go back in. In some ways, this is a commentary that the magic of the Egyptians only makes things worse. Notice that they're done after two tricks. When the gnats come, the magicians say, Pharaoh, this is the finger of a god. Not of God, of of a god. But Pharaoh's already hardened his heart because the the magicians have told him now three times in a row, three, biblical number, a good one, that they can do this. Sort of a weird, 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 weird way to contemplate the story, right? Also weird is this line... You will be God, and Aaron will be your prophet. (laughs) I just think that's a weird analogy that God uses, right? Then we get to the plagues. And I I just want to make sure I don't get too bogged down. The plagues. There's lots of ways to understand this. I think the man in the video talked a lot about light and dark, and and maybe that's helpful. Um, 
The scholarship I'm most familiar with is that this is really a battle between the gods of the Egyptian pantheon and their geographic domains and the God of Israel and who indeed has more power in each geography. So if I can start out, you learned something about Egyptian religion probably when you were in grade school. It's probably all wrong because nobody really understands Egyptian religion at all. Um, you learn that there's these half human, half animal people, and they didn't think that the gods were animals at all. The, the animal bit is to show you that they're not just regular people, right? They're iconography. The other thing you learn probably is that there's Osiris, and Osiris has the son Horus, um, and those are dis distinct gods, but Horus is also Ra's eye and a falcon and Ra's son all at the same time. So we just, we just don't really know a lot about Egyptian religion, important to know. But we do know that there are different gods with different geographies. So Seth is the crocodile, that's Osiris' brother, and he's the god of the Nile. So if another god can turn the Nile to blood, then that god has jurisdiction of the Nile, not Seth, right? I'm gonna skip over the minor ones, like the gods of the frogs and the livestock, and catch you up to the end, the most important god in the Egyptian pantheon, probably everybody knows this one, is Ra, the sun god. And what do you know? It's dark for three days. Who has jurisdiction over the sky? Ra, or the god of the Hebrews. And then the last one is the firstborn, and again, um, Amun-Ra uh, could be Ra, but could also be Horus, the son of Ra. <laughs> depends, depends on what Egyptian text you read. Um, but the plague of the firstborn is the plague on Horus. Right? So again, God shows God's got geographic jurisdiction over the firstborn, even in Egypt, not just in Canaan. So again, one way to read it is that this is God systematically not proving the, the non-existence of the Egyptian gods, but proving their relative inferiority. One by one by one. Hmm? Okay, so after each one, Pharaoh says, I will let your people go. Mm -hmm. Okay, he's seen what terrible things this God has done. So I will let your people go. Then God hardens his heart. Or he hardens his own. The first five, he does his own. When Pharaoh sees that the frogs are gone, Whew, I don't have to worry about those frogs anymore. Well, now that I'm not so worried, never mind. <laughs> but then some of the others, he says, That's right. I'll let your people go, and God says, I'm going to harden your heart. Yeah. I don't either. I don't like it. I mean, I don't. I, don't, I just I don't like it. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Some people, like John Calvin, would say that God has predestined us to be objects of redemption or objects of wrath. And so number six is in a fix, and number seven goes to heaven, and there's nothing you can do about it. I, I just I wouldn't worship that God. And that might reveal I'm an object of wrath. But it seems like if I have no control whatsoever, then what would be the point of trying? Which is why I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Protestant and not a Reformed Protestant. But that's Calvin's, John Calvin reads that seriously. And there's a little poem that says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. It's a poem. But John Calvin read that very seriously and said, oh, God hated Esau. Because Esau was an object of wrath and Jacob was an object of redemption. When a closer read of the text says, Jacob's a jerk. 
And Esau's not actually a jerk. Like, he seems like an all right guy, you know. He may not be the brightest guy, but he seems okay, you know. And, and that's, so I don't know what to do with that. Was Pharaoh considered a god? Not yet. Not no yet. king is a god until they die. The first one, this is a bonus question. Does anybody know who the first person that said, I'm a god while they're alive? It's Alexander the Great, who stylized himself to be a demigod. He looks like Hercules. He wears the lion cape, and he's got, he's got the hair of Hercules. Uh, Chris Leedy has a, has, has a coin from the Holy Land of uh, Alexander. And then he starts that trend of saying, um, I'm, an, I'm the August one. Augustus Caesar would be another one. There's one in the middle called Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the, the king during the Maccabean revolt. But the Egyptians believe that pharaohs become demigods after they die. So you'll read a commentary that'll say, this is Pharaoh is God versus God is God, and it's not the deal. Pharaoh's not God yet. He's, he's just going to be one later. <laughs> Well, tens is a significant Bible number, 7, 10, 12, 3, 40, and 144. And 10 is really important because Hebrews and Semitic people south of Mesopotamia are on the decimal system. Of course, if you're in Mesopotamia, it's on the hexadecimal system, which is base 60. I'm not really sure how you do that unless you count all your joints. And the, you, you get one, two, three, you know what I mean? Then you can count to 60 on your appendages that way. But in general, one through 10 just makes sense. Why are there 12 inches and a foot? Maybe someone had six fingers on each hand. I'm sorry, who knows, right? Because 12 is a really... I show you that movie so you can hear what other people think. <laughs> I, I don't always think charitably about what they think, but that's why you get to hear both of us. Maybe three threes is appealing to you, but three threes is nine, not ten. So I, I, and there's ten. So anyway, uh, okay. Some people will tell you, interestingly enough, who, who, who want to like call demythologize. They want to take the miracle out of this. Uh, they'll tell you that this, all these things are a chain of events that started by a volcano that blew up a bunch of ash, which covered the sun, and then that settled into the Nile and created this red fungus that looked like blood, and of course it poisoned the water, so the frogs came, and when they died, the gnats came, and then the flies come where the gnats are, and then they bring the harbingers of disease to the livestock. Right? And the hail that falls like fire on the ground is like exploding lava. It's a great idea, but there's no volcano there. <laughs> so, so I don't know. Um, and and, and uh, I think the point is, uh, even events that could happen like that so serially and, and so wipe out these people at this critical moment in history would be pretty miraculous. Uh, the only thing you should know is that there's no evidence that any of this happened. There's just this story. So you've got to think about how cataclysmic these events sound. Egypt would be in ruins, but it never was. Not saying it didn't happen. Saying that was obviously most critical is that the story is saying that God's covenant extends outside Canaan. So God has jurisdiction outside the geography. And that God is always calling the people out from bondage. 
this gets us to the ninth one, which is unlike, I mean, the tenth one, which is unlike all the other nine. The other nine just happen, right? Oh, oh, I, sorry, I forgot to mention that Pharaoh does dicker a bunch with Moses about, Pharaoh says, okay, you can go worship God, but just the men. Because if you don't leave collateral, you won't come back. And he's right. <laughs> and and Moshe says, no, 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 we've got to have everybody. And then another one, Pharaoh says, okay, okay, but, but don't, you, you can go, and you can even bring the ladies, but you can't bring the animals. You've got to have some collateral. <laughs> Again, I, I mean, Pharaoh's right. He's right the whole time. They're trying to leave. Pharaoh says, you have evil in mind. <laughs> And he's right. Because Moses is lying. He's, he's lying. Notice Pharaoh also says a couple of times, I've sinned. I've sinned. I've missed the mark. Not I've, I've broken some kind of moral prescription that I didn't even know about. Because there's no Ten Commandments. There's no covenant. <laughs> I just, I missed the mark. And here's how I missed it. Here's how I'm going to re-aim I'm going to let you go on that holiday, the men folk. Right? So consider that's re-aiming. That's repentance by the Pharaoh. All the nine happened, and we get to Passover, and we get a whole chapter on what you're supposed to do with the Passover. Not on the plague itself. And then you get to the next chapter, and it tells you even more what you're supposed to do. And, and there's some weirdness here, because according to it, Passover is the New Year festival. But it isn't. <laughs> Rosh Hashanah is the New Year festival. <laughs> Actually, there's three festivals that are the New Year. So, you, you, again, this is how people th- say there's different sources in the Bible. Right? Now, now, Passover is an interesting bit because... Has anybody done it at a synagogue before? Anybody been to a Seder? Not here, but a, a Seder that is hosted by a rabbi. Okay. We actually do the same meal here. We've done it the last two years, and they call it the Haggadah, right? That's the name of the service. It's basically a catechism, a question and answer, and it's prescribed. Every time you do it, the youngest person in the room, even if they're 74, has to ask the four questions. Why is this night different from any other nights? Why do we eat bitter herbs, right? Why do we eat unleavened bread this night? The oldest person in the room is supposed to answer those questions, and there's no room for creativity. You have to say the same words, right? And what's interesting is they don't change the tense. You never say in the Haggadah, our ancestors were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them. Every year they say we were slaves and God delivered us. Notice, if you've been to one of these before, it is not ever done as described in the Bible. (laughs) You're supposed to stand up, have your hand on your staff, which is like have your car running. The reason for this is you're leaving any second, so you don't want to waste any time starting that car. You know, you need to crank that (laughs) so it's ready to go. Anybody ever been to one of these where you stand up? And we sat down here. We didn't, we didn't sit down. You did a standing one? No Jewish person does that. I just want you to know. They all sit down. <laughs> you can find Christian people that do it the biblical way. No Jewish person does it the biblical way. They all sit down. Right? Nobody eats with their hand tucked into their garment. I just want you to know. And nobody's got their staff in their other hand. And I don't think... And Jewish people, you should know, since the destruction of the temple, they don't eat lamb either. 
So no Jewish people put lamb on the Seder plate where they're not supposed to because the temple's been destroyed. We did it just to give you a flavor of somewhere in between of what that's like, but, but, but Jewish people don't do that. Um, there's some elements here that are important to look at. Did you notice that you can have a lamb or a goat? Yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus is never called the goat of God? And I, went, and I mentioned that to you to really challenge what he said in the video, which drives me crazy. Um, that lamb or goat has nothing to do with sin. If it did, the text would tell you that. It doesn't. The text says, you're going in the morning or in the middle of the night. Eat this lamb, eat all of it. Or eat this kid, eat all of it. Burn up what you don't eat so that you're ready to go. These are people who eat meat once or twice a year. They're getting ready to go on a long journey, and they need superfood. They need calories. The purpose of the lamb and the goat is not to cover their sin. It's to nourish them for the journey. What about the blood? Well, we talked about this two weeks ago. Remember, blood is a biblical cipher for life. The blood of the animal is the life. And you can't have it because the life isn't yours. Now, now, you know, you may, may or may not know this, the blood of mammals actually has pretty high nutritional value. It's full of things like iron. I mean, the Maasai people in Africa, they keep their, their cows alive and they drink the blood because that's enough. And then they just gum it up, right? And the animal produces more blood and they drink some more in another week. These Hebrew people have to waste the blood. They can't have the nutrition even. They can't have the life. They have to pour it out on the ground to show that that life isn't theirs. They're not getting the powers of the animal. Why do they put it on their door? Perhaps as a marker that they are acknowledging that the life belongs to God and now they're ready to go. So to say that Jesus is the Passover lamb, that's fine as long as you know then the life of Jesus is there to nourish us for our faith journey, not to cover up some kind of sin that these people don't know about. Now I'm not telling you Jesus didn't die for sin. I'm just saying that's not the Passover story. Does that make sense what I'm saying? There's nothing in this story about the lamb representing a sacrifice for sin. The story is about strength for the journey, which is why we pray at 1030 in Eucharistic Prayer C, deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for solace only for, and not for strength, for pardon and not for renewal. That's the Passover story. The lamb and the goat give you renewal and strength so that you can journey out of bondage. <laughs> um, yeast, we know about a little bit, but remember, even though these are Jewish people, there's no Fleischmann's yet. So there's no packets or little bits. They get the yeast from the air or they get it from sourdough starter. And the reason they eat unleavened bread is because, well, they didn't have time for that to permeate their dough. So they just had to roll it out before it could rise. The reason Jewish people do it now is not because yeast is dirty. They do it to remember themselves in the story. They're doing the story again. That's why you eat standing up, so that you can do it. And remember that this is what God wants for you. Interestingly enough, every Passover meal has 
the same thing that you have every Friday at a Shabbat. Anybody been to Shabbat at somebody's house before? There's three things that happen at every Shabbat, happen at the Passover. See if you recognize them. There's two candles on the table. And then there's a silver cup of wine that gets blessed and everybody drinks some. And then there's some bread that gets circulated after it gets blessed and broken. Sounds like the Eucharist, <laughs> which is what Jewish people have been doing for a long, long time in the Passover. So if you ever wonder, where did we get that idea? We've got it right down here. Any questions about Passover? <laughs> well, that's what Jesus was doing at the Last Supper. Wasn't he at first? I mean, it was connected to Passover. That was the Passover. According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, yes. In John, definitely not. In John, the Last Supper happens the day before the Passover meal because John wants to say that Jesus is being killed the same times as the lambs are. John's the one who says Jesus is the Passover lamb. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So they have a different chronology. And again, this is important to know. When the Bible disagrees factually, it's for a reason. John's trying to interpret what the life and death of Jesus mean not tell you exactly how it happened. If you don't trust me, go back and read this. <laughs> Jesus gets killed with the lambs, which would be Thursday night, not Friday night, because you can't kill a lamb on Friday night. It's Shabbat, and that'd be work, and it'd be taking life. Well, because our slavery is bitter. <laughs> Reconnects you with that, right? And then there's salt water on the table, and that reminds us of our tears. I mean, it gives us a good pedagogy, right? This, this is what good teachers do with people, is they get them to sincerely participate in the story. Um, so they do that, and Pharaoh says, okay, you can leave and get out of here. Now, now, when does Pharaoh change his mind about chasing him? Could be three days later when they don't come back. <laughs> we don't know, right? Again, was Pharaoh thinking they were just going for three days? Because that's what he'd been asked. We, we, we really don't know. We do know that um, all of a sudden shows up this weird thing where God says you have to consecrate your firstborn. Because all the firstborn belong to me. And this just shows up out of nowhere. I just want to point out. Um, remember I told you that when you worship Chemosh or Milcom or Molech, you have to burn up your firstborn son in a fire to worship that God. This is God saying, you don't do that, but their life belongs to me. You can redeem it by breaking the neck of a donkey. I, good luck. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Jewish people don't do this today. They, they don't break donkeys' necks to redeem their firstborn kid. I just, just want to show up. But there is this interesting thing that all these Canaanite people were essentially liquidating their firstborn, and, and the Hebrew people have said, well, the firstborn somehow belongs to God. And you'll see that with the prophet Samuel. His mother drops him off at the temple and says, he's yours, God, <laughs> and leaves him at the temple. And she does it because of this. We don't know if anybody else in the Bible does it, but, but, but Hannah does.
Um, there's Philistines. God's going to take them by the way of the Philistines. They're too strong, so God sends them another way. There's not any Philistines. <laughs> the Philistines don't show up for 300 years. They come from Mycenae and Greece, and they have iron weapons, and the Hebrew people have boards with, like, nails on them. Um, so, so it's reasonable to think the Philistines would be really scary. There just aren't any at this time. It's, this is one of those anachronisms. Yes? I'm sure I've read somewhere or heard somewhere that um, <laughs> the Jewish people want one of their sons to be a rabbi. I mean, is, is it they expect the firstborn to be a rabbi? No. Is that giving them to God? No. So you've got to think through this. There's only two tribes that can have people do religious duties. The rabbinic movement is new. The rabbinic movement is about 2,000 years old. The priestly system and the Levite system is 3,500 3, years old. Right? So the first priest is Aaron. Interesting enough, Aaron means ark, like ark of the covenant. Aaron is the ark. His name is who he is. All of Aaron's kids are the ones who tend the ark, which later makes them the priests in Jerusalem. Moshe's kids are the Levites. They're the ones who end up being the butchers. They don't follow the tabernacle around. They go and live where the people live, and they worship God out there by chopping the animals up for them. So priests are butchers, first of all. They're just, that's what they do. They're the butchers of the ancient world. When you killed an animal, you brought it to the priest. You didn't do it yourself. That was their job? That's their job. And the story, in case you're wondering why that's a good choice, because Shimon and Levi butcher all those people. <laughs> when their sister Dinah is known by Shechem, we don't know if he rapes her or not. That's the classical interpretation, but the Hebrew is not clear. They circumcise all the people, and while they're still in pain, they go kill them. They're butchers, and that's what they end up being, butchers. Not a happy uh, etiology for the clergy, right? When you talk about the breaking of the donkey, wasn't the whole point that they sacrificed it and then it had to be made, and so if you're not going to sacrifice the first one, then you have to have It's a vicarious sacrifice. Maybe. We can't, tell, yeah, we can't tell when that trend, um, how strong that trend was and when it ended. Because, you know, um, this idea about substitutionary atonement is real hazy. We'll read about it next week. You do that on Yom Kippur, right? There's a heifer that you kill unblemished and blood goes everywhere. But, but that's actually not the sin offering. The sin, it's an offering. The thing that gets rid of the sin is when you put your hands on the head of a goat and then you shoo it. But you don't dare kill it. You have to drive it away to represent the sin leaving your area. You have to the scapegoat, which interestingly enough in Hebrew. Let's wait until we read it. Depends on your income level, right? It does. But we don't know if anybody did it. This is one of the hard things about the Bible. It, it, it represents some level of religion, but, you know, we've, like, found graffiti on walls. 
that have different ideas than the Bible, and they're real old, that cave graffiti. Could be young punks, you know, but, but we don't know how widely practiced the stuff, like the priestly code, what, we just don't know that. We assume, ah, oh, this is what people did. This is what the priests did. What did everybody else do, we don't know. Not to introduce too much doubt. There is something you should doubt. It's never the Red Sea, not once. It's called the Sea of Reeds. Maybe you're wondering where that is. Nobody knows. If the Bible cared, it would tell you. Um, some people say it's this marshy water that's like six, six inches deep. That wouldn't diminish the miracle. If you could drown a whole army in six-inch deep water, that'd be arguably more miraculous than in 60-foot deep water. Um, they go there. God says, I'm going to gain glory for myself by killing all the Egyptians. One wonders about the glory of that, right? One wonders. I've already told you the story where God, all the angels in heaven rejoice at this, and God says, be quiet. I'm lamenting the loss of my children. You do this at the Haggadah. You, you, you put tears on your plate for the Egyptians. It's good. The Haggadah is cool that way, right? You remember, you remember the innocent Egyptians. Pharaoh, as all despots, doesn't suffer like his people do. He gets to live. A um, couple other weird things to point out, maybe, is that the people are in the desert where there's not a lot of water, and starvation's a real fear, and you know what? There's also not agriculture, and they only have so many animals, and when they eat that, they're all going to die, and they can't drink the blood of the animals and get hydrated. So what do they do? They complain. <laughs> We're starving. We're thirsty, like small children do. And in Exodus, God gives them what they want. Because it's true what they're saying. They are going to starve. Pay attention. You'll hear the same stories again in the next, within the next two or three weeks in numbers. And when they complain, God just kills them. Kind of like St. Augustine, who decided that people are inherently sinful because babies only think of themselves. That's because they can't do anything. <laughs> All they do is cry when they're hungry and when they're wet and they want stuff. They just cry People are selfish. That was his conclusion. I totally missed, right, that we're interconnected mammals. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's a neat resolution. Miriam says the same song as Moses. Have you noticed? I will sing unto the Lord. God has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. Moses has a much longer version. Uh, every scholar would tell you Miriam's older. Another criterion for dating is if it's shorter. Shorter. And it's more embarrassing because it's a woman doing it. And Miriam's not called a prophetess, she's called a prophet. So this is, this is a good affirmation of women early. Well, you know, there's this pejorative bit that happens when you're an Episcopal priest and you're a woman. People call you priestess. Or they call you mother. And some women like to be called that, but let's just not, let's not pretend that mother and father are the same. It's weird. I just, it's weird. I don't like being called father. My own kids don't call me that. <laughs> they usually say, hey, you, uh, which is fine. You know what I mean? Beyond that, Jesus sort of says, call no man father because we have one father in heaven. So, you know, whatever. Do, do what you want with that. But, but we do have this weird bit, and this happened when women first started getting ordained, that people would call them the priestess, uh, and it was diminutive. But, but here, she's a Prophet, not a prophetess. It's not diminutive. She's a prophet like Moses is. And that's important. Yeah. 
Maybe uh, interesting to say there's this biblical scholar some of you have heard of called uh, Marcus Borg, B-O-R-G. He's now dead. Um, uh, and, and a lot of people called him this sort of liberal Protestant scholar. Um, I think his books are actually really interesting because they have this bird's eye view often. And he says, you know, there are a couple of themes in the Bible. One of them is deliverance from bondage. Another is being exiled from home and coming back. And we'll read about that in a couple of weeks. Um, and what Marcus Borg says, I think, and this is part of the relevance of this, this story, right, is um, one way to hear his story is to get bogged down in the details, which I've done with you a little bit, and another is to hear that it is God's intent to deliver us from bondage. And it's sort of in the words of the spiritual, the one go down Moses, way down in Egypt's land, right? Moses went down, he made all Pharaohs understand, I don't know if you know that line, he made all pharaohs understand. Well, there's only one in the story, but of course the interpretation is we are all subject to pharaohs still, whether those are despotic individuals or those are more insidious powers that we usually end in the word ism, like sexism, racism, ageism, chauvinism. There's really not a good ism out there, you know? And I think the question is, this is right about the Haggadah, do we need deliverance from the isms this year? I would argue we do, <laughs> as a nation, as a world, as individuals, as individual family units. The story is saying that God would desperately like to remember us, to remember us to this hope of living in an ism-free world, and that God would strengthen us to make that journey. Notice, like they said in the video, this is right. They don't get out of Egypt and are delivered. They still have to go, <laughs> right? And, and, and that's, in many ways, that's the journey of faith, right? Is trying to be delivered and deliver others from the isms, uh, whether they're in our clan or not. They might give up. When you read it in Numbers, it's because of their lack of faith, not because God's concerned about their lack of faith. So hold on to it, because it's, it's neat to see that the Bible has different perspectives. And I think, that is, I think that is a very empathetic reading, right? To say that God, in general, doesn't give us a temptation that we can't handle. I just wish God didn't trust me so much. <laughs> right? Um, if I've made this sound a lot like social justice is what God has in mind, I did a good job. Because I'm pretty sure that's the story of the text. It begins with civil disobedience. It ends with the face of injustice losing all of his power, whether that happened really or not, right? That's how the story goes. And then the people wandering from injustice, and we'll see how well they do next week. 
right, we'll, we'll see what they do with their newfound freedom and whether or not they indeed live into the justice God intends. See you next week. Thanks. <laughs>